Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me on the other line, the new chancellor of Pepsi Georgetown University, it's Danielle Anley. Oh my God, that was a good one, and also like feels so good to be back and hear your like lovely voice. Oh, thank you. Calling me something very weird in reference to this show. Yeah, well, congratulations on the new gig. <laughs> I love it, you know. That's, that's why that's why we've been on such a break is that Danielle had to go through the Chancellor search of Pepsi University. I I'd like to thank all of the search committee. <laughs> <laughs> um, although I guess for the for the listeners, I almost said the readers. For the listeners, <laughs> it's not the same hiatus. <laughs> this is weird because we recorded an episode yeah. back in October, yeah, three one, and now here we are in mid to late December recording three two. But, but the listeners will hear these like a week apart. Yeah, exactly. And in the meantime, it, during to end the first hiatus, yeah. we got matching tattoos. Correct. And to end the second hiatus, we finished teaching for the semester. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sadly, we are not in the back of my car in no, the parking garage in But Troy. we were. And if we you were. listen to the episode before this, you know that. Yeah. Um, but we are back over Zoom far away from each other in the reaches of upstate New York and the... Uh, I'm interested to have what description you go with here. I kept, I wanted to be like the dregs of Worcester. Like, <laughs> I'm actually in my office at Clark and like, I love this office. So yeah, it's a nice <laughs> office. You got, you got cool bookshelves. Yeah. Wait, did I show you, did I send you a, a picture of the John Locke hate club? Oh. oh yes, you did. <laughs> Honestly, the best piece of, uh, the best present a student has ever made me. Absolutely. So I'll yeah. shout out that student, Ellie. Thank you. Thank you, LA. Now I get to see it on the back and in, in Danielle's like Zencaster background. <laughs> Weird little shrines of stuff students have given me. Yeah, I see a llama back there, um, some flowers, a drawing of some sort. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, somebody for their final project for WGS 110 made a zine uh, to capture like what it means to live a feminist life. So that's hanging up there too. Yeah, one of my students in my environmental political thought class, they were doing creative final products, made a made a crochet earth with crocheting trash and plastic deposits in the ocean. Whoa. To depict them, among many other cool things. I love it. Well, while we could have an entire podcast where we just talk about things we love that our students did, Correct. that's actually not what we're here to do today. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> surprise. Um John, what are we what are we doing today? We're discussing finally American season three, episode two, baggage, directed by Daniel Sackheim and written by Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg and Lara Shapiro. Danielle, do you want to read an IMDB summary for us? Sure. So the IMDB summary for baggage says that Elizabeth and Philip come together to deal with a mission gone wrong, but struggle to reconcile their ideologies. Stan welcomes a Soviet defector to America. Nina acclimates to her new living arrangements. All right. For, to get kind of back in the swing of things, Daniel, I thought perhaps we could take the episode title extremely literally. Love it. Um, would you say this episode is about baggage? 
I would say this episode is about baggage. There's like physical material baggage, suitcases, crates, cargo, Mm -hmm. and also like psychic, psychological, mental, emotional baggage. Very true. And not quite great books fashion. I think we we want to explore all of these dimensions, the, the material and the psychic both. A, a, a true bull fan, if you will. <laughs> See, it doesn't take long. Like, you recording in, and like, Danielle's giving me a bull fan. So we're, yes. we're, we're right on track here. Um, Keller, yeah, so, you're welcome. <laughs> I'm, are we sure Keller listens? I'm, I'm less sure. He definitely um, listens before he records with us. So that's a great point. So maybe he will check this one yeah. out. <laughs> um, so I guess let's start, Danielle, with the physical and material baggage. And probably one of, if not the single most difficult scene to watch. It's a mostly wordless scene in the entirety of the Americans. So as a first time viewer of the show, how did you experience Elizabeth showing up at the hotel, dragging this giant suitcase and being like, oh shit, they're going to shove Annalise fold her up and shove her into the suitcase to get her out of there. Yeah. So first you had texted me like, this is a tough episode to watch. You hadn't said exactly what was tough about it, but like mm-hmm. you had given me the heads up, which I appreciated. Cause like, I don't love body horror stuff. Um, and so then the episode basically like, it doesn't open on, but like very quickly we get into, we get, we get back to Annalise and, and Yusuf and Philip and all of that. And Elizabeth walks in with that suitcase. And I was just like, oh, that suitcase is a weird size. Like, there's a body going in that bag. Like, I knew from the beginning that that's what was going to happen. Like, that's how, like, you get, I guess, a person out of a hotel room. And it was just, like, a little horrifying to think of. And I'll admit, like, I couldn't watch the actual bone-breaking pieces. I, I, like, covered my eyes for that. Yeah, and it's... It's not something the Americans does very frequently is any kind of body horror. Like that's not their vibe necessarily. That's not their aesthetic ultimately. But here, I mean, yes, the visuals do it. And like they, you know, are not, the camera is getting in there up close to see how they are breaking all of Annalise's bones to fold her up to shove her into the suitcase. It's really though the sound design of the situation here and how it's almost wordless, right? Yeah. There's very, very, very little dialogue. So the predominant sound of this entire scene are the bones cracking. Yeah. It's really and that like I cannot cover my eyes to avoid that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, and and that's like it's interesting that you bring that up because I had my eyes covered once I realized what was going on, and then you just hear the crunching, mm-hmm. and it's like oh, and like and the only like speaking that's happening is around the like maneuvering the body and like moving the body in a particular way t- to be able to break the bones. Well, mm-hmm. it's. I mean, it's one of the most brutal scenes and kind of like one of the most effective scenes. It's very economical. They don't spend a lot of time discussing, like, here's what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. It's Elizabeth knows to show up with that bag and they get to work. They lay out the, like, plastic sheeting and get to work. And, of course, like, get a blackmail photo of Yusuf while they're at it. Um, Yeah. For good measure. Listen, 
Here's the other thing I thought about in that scene, especially when Elizabeth walks in and then like when they take the blackmail photograph, my thought was like, good thing these hotels don't actually have like a real security system, (laughs) which like I think is made manifest in the moment where they get that blackmail photograph, right? Like that, like that they're the ones in control Mm -hmm. of this baggage. And it's also that it's almost as if they have done this before. They, in fact, they have. <laughs> right. I mean, one has to kind of assume that from yeah. the, of course, um, like they're going to emotionally distance themselves as much as possible from what they're doing, especially yeah. because on some level, Philip did care for Annalise. I think yeah. that that's like quite clear um, and becomes clearer in the conversation he has as Scott with, um, uh, with Yusef later on. Yeah. But the precision and just this is what we're doing nature of it made me think at least that this is not the first time they have broken somebody's bones to smuggle them out of uh, space. Yeah. And it's like, while this is, and I think like in the, um, in the IMDb summary, it's like the mission has gone wrong, right? Like while this mission has gone wrong, like they know exactly the moves to make, like they know exactly how to like, how to do this so much so that like the directions that are being given around breaking the body are not being given like to Philip or Elizabeth. Like they're, they're giving those directions to Yusuf, right? Like mm-hmm. they're, they're coaching him through it. So like, this is maybe it's like part of the baggage that comes with Philip and Elizabeth is just like the weight of like knowing how to do this, like clockwork, which is, which is rough. And the weight of having to, as you point out, this is a bad thing that has happened and also for them is an ideal opportunity. Mm -hmm. And they view it as such and understand it. Philip understands it as such immediately. A hundred percent. Or like within two and a half seconds of walking into that hotel room at the end of the previous episode. A hundred percent. He knows exactly what the next steps are, not only to get rid of Annalise, but to turn this to his and Elizabeth's advantage and make Yusuf their asset. I think that's absolutely right. And like, like who better to turn this like physical baggage into like a kind of incentive mm-hmm. or a kind of jumping off point than Philip and Elizabeth. That's mm-hmm. their whole thing. It is their whole thing. And that's evidenced by the way that we see Yusef the rest of the episode. So we yeah. get the scene of him and Philip meeting at this very cool space. Yeah. Like, I don't know what, I don't know what that is. I didn't no, have any neither. particular guesses, but it was kind of beautiful actually. Yeah. It's like a winter. So it's winter. Um, in the show or November in the show, as we find out later and we'll talk about later, but it's like, they're cold. They're bundled up. They're in some like indoor abandoned water situation. No, what it felt like to me was this is an inn or a hotel or something like that. But like, that is like not in season. Okay. Right. So this is like, you could see that there are like these big windows and you could, you could, probably today like there would be a heating system where you could use it in november sure but i'm sure it's like something seasonal like in the like maryland northern virginia area that like it's like a it's like a nicer inn or something like that yeah makes sense we get we get yusuf there and there's a half a minute of dialogue about annalise and how yusuf at first thought that annalise was a kind of like trivial 
human being. Right. And then was like, but she had an art history degree. Like we could talk about serious issues, these kinds right. of things. And then we of course later get all of the spycraft stuff that's happening with them using Yusuf to set up a meeting with the CIA Afghan group for Elizabeth and Philip to spy on. Right. So like to exactly. circle this extremely long winded point that I'm making, like you're, Emphasis on them just doing this as part of the job follows through structurally in how Yusuf appears in the rest of the episode. No, absolutely. And I think like it's, I think it's interesting to think about like this relationship through the lens of baggage because like for you and I, right. The like, like relatively recent initiates into the world of spycraft, <laughs> right? We're like, oh god, this is a this is a real mess up. Like we got to figure this out. And there and and for them, it's like, oh no 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 no. Like every single every mess up holds with it. Like the chance to like cash in and ratchet up and and do something like bigger and broader and like to your point about like structurally, we see that develop through the episode. Like Yusuf is, is the, like at some point he's not, or rather I think for Philip, he's still wary and he's still baggage. And like, there's a, there's a challenge there. And Elizabeth has fully like abandoned that and is just like full steam ahead. And I think that's a really interesting dichotomy between those two characters that kind of like swirls around Yusuf. It is because Elizabeth is simultaneously carrying the baggage of having lost the list of the names of the CA yes. Afghan group in the previous episode in her fight with mm-hmm. Gad and Aderholt, and simultaneously <laughs> reminds Philip that, like, you should have let me be the one to yes. trap Yusuf and not yes. use Annalise. So she's willing to guilt trip Philip in the midst of their conflict that's you know throughout this entire episode and predates it as well of course so elizabeth is turning the particular situation and playing with both the like psychic and material dynamics of it um and pursuing this lead for her as you point out yeah and she's using it to manipulate philip right like that that's the and i I don't know that's like always going to make me feel sad Yeah, like course. I want them to not manipulate each other. And and yet, like we see in this episode, it's like even at the end, and well, we can get to this a little bit later, but even at the end when like Paige is reading the newspaper and you see that look between Philip and Elizabeth, it's like, oh, our entire relationship is like it's a power play, right? Like mm-hmm. that's just what it is. And mm-hmm. and like to to come back to the to the baggage metaphor, it's like that's some serious emotional baggage there. <laughs> it is because one way to view the relationship between Elizabeth and Philip throughout the entirety of the Americans is how do they weigh as characters and then how do we weigh as viewers yeah. their family and their relationship as uh, kind of generative on its own terms as family yeah. right? or as kinship versus the baggage that's always hanging over them of this was essentially an arranged marriage for the purpose of spying in an extremely dangerous way for the Soviet Union in the U.S. And kind of what form of existence or what form of the family persists or kind of takes over the other or is more prominent than the other is in some ways the central long-term dynamic of the show. Yeah, it just, (laughs) it's like... It weighs on me. We've been now in a long, percolating 
thinking back to season two, like the conflict between them is very, very present. Yes. In this period of the show. Yeah. And I think like there was a moment where it wasn't as present. And Mm -hmm. like, this is an episode where it like, it's not only so present, but like you're seeing, it's almost you're at once like around Yusuf, you're at once seeing both how like, how quick and quick thinking and like sharp around this stuff Philip is and also how he completely falls short of where Elizabeth is right where like he has to call her he can't figure this out by himself and like she will use all of these pieces against him and there's like something about that that maybe wasn't as apparent or as stark to me um as it is in this episode right philip is more consciously self-divided yes right his division of the self is more at the surface and constantly on his mind and with elizabeth it's that division is like that splitting is absolutely there yeah but it's just so much more submerged and like fucking her over unconsciously um whereas philip it's all conscious exactly exactly and those are the, the the different psychic baggages that they are carrying individually, yeah, coming out of their situation, condition, relationship, right, structural position yeah. in the world, all of these sorts of things. Yeah, it's it's weird how all of this kind of mirrors each other. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like it was put together intentionally in the thought and purpose. <laughs> and then, and like in the background of all of this, and we get further in this episode. In response to last episode of Elizabeth getting the tape from Gabriel of her mother. Yeah. Um, right. Elizabeth's mother is predominantly in the kind of psychic landscape and emotional landscape of this episode. And we get uh, coming out of what would be a commercial break, just like a pure, basically contextless flashback to Elizabeth and her mother, where... Elizabeth or little Elizabeth Naviezda wants to go to like the celebration of the victory in the great patriotic war. And her mother's like, no, your father was a deserter. So the the memorial is not for him. The celebration is not for him. I know. And then we get flashbacks straight back to Elizabeth in the present day. So there's like, that's a piece of the puzzle that is newly revealed to us as the audience. Yes. And I think that piece of the puzzle being newly revealed then also like makes the story that Elizabeth tells where she like tells her mother that she tells her mother when she's not supposed to. Right. But she likes, and she says that she's like, I'm using spy. I use spycraft to do it. Like I'm going to break the rules, but I'm going to use spycraft to do it, Mm -hmm. which is like how better to encapsulate Elizabeth within a one quote than that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right. I'm going to have this deep emotional moment with a family member, but I'm going to use spycraft to do it. But I have exactly. to, like, Great be point. using my training, you know? Yeah. Um, and she says that her mother, like, never hesitated. Like, when I called, she says, when I called, my mother didn't hesitate. When I was called, my mother didn't hesitate. And I mm-hmm. think, like, mm-hmm. that is made, that that makes much more sense now that we have the, like, backstory of Elizabeth's father. Right, because her father did. When yeah. he was called, right? In Elizabeth's in Elizabeth's mother Elizabeth's mother's retelling of the story. Yeah. And it also starts to make Elizabeth's like fervent, like hanging on to Precisely. ideology, mm-hmm. like in a way that that is starting to make less and less sense to Philip. 
mm-hmm. right? Who's someone who's always reacting to his surroundings, whereas Elizabeth is not. She's like putting her training into play. And those are different ways to like, to I think exist in their world. Mm-hmm. But it makes all of that make more sense too. Now that we know those pieces about Elizabeth's past. Why do you think this is going to be a very teacher question? So I'm sorry, but why do you think the show puts that here? Why wait until season three, episode two to give us this particular story about Elizabeth's father that her mother tells? And then also this moment that you're calling attention to of of Elizabeth using spycraft to have this emotional connection for her mother to tell her to like answer the call. I think it, to me, why we get it in season three and why we haven't gotten it before is because the stakes are, are higher now because of all the stuff with Paige. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's the it's trying to help Philip understand why Elizabeth is, like, so much more confident that this yeah. could be the right move because I think she sees part of herself in Paige. Mm-hmm. And, and that idea that, like, this was in the last episode, but also last season that Paige needs something to hold on to. Like Elizabeth is trying to give her that something Mm -hmm. in the same way that, that she, whether she knew she needed that something when she was younger, she found it right. Like, yeah. And is trying to enact for Paige, what she understands to be the best or most loving or like most patriotic act of her mother, which is to encourage Elizabeth to like accept this mission and go to the U S for the rest of her life to die there, whether that be in a shootout in two years or of old age in 50 years. Right. Um, and she's trying to live that version of her mother for Paige. Yeah, I think that's right. And also like, I think the other piece of this is that Philip's like, we could get her out. Like we're good at that, which they like are, (laughs) I don't doubt that. (laughs) And, and Elizabeth's like, no, like she doesn't want, that's not her. She, she would never desert, right? Like she would never be the one to leave. Yeah. She wouldn't even leave if I asked her to like, Mm -hmm. I, I, that to me was the takeaway from like all of that, like put together. Yeah. Um, let's circle back around to this in gloss. Okay. <laughs> or in, uh, in the dossier, I should say. Okay. Um, about the conversation about leaving. Now, in this exploration, which I've really enjoyed, of like the deep psyches of <laughs> Philip and Elizabeth here, Love. gets thrown into contrast, both narratively, but also structurally in the episode and how they're editing the episode together. At the end, where we have Oleg's dad, Igor Pavlovich, yeah. comes to the prison where Nina is being held yeah. and has this, you know, conversation that, like, in true Nina fashion, it starts out kind of very surface level and, like, you know, surface level given the situation that Nina is in sure. prison and Oleg is you know, worked up about it. And then like quickly goes into like the existential <laughs> territory of uh, parents are always trying to understand our children better and quote, or they're our greatest misfortune. We're so often disappointed. Yeah. It's a real children <laughs> as baggage family yeah. as the site of baggage vibes yeah. right there. <laughs> Absolutely. But like that, 
children are the great misfortune, you know. And so here we should think, plot-wise at least, that of Igor Pavlovich's two sons, one is Oleg, right. who he views as a fuck-up. Right, right, right. right? He's and the... views, like, as weak for having this, we think, views him as weak for having this, like, connection to a reliance on Nina. Yeah. And his other son is off fighting in Afghanistan. Well, I think also, like, just to add to that, that, that Oleg is the fuck-up also because he's, like, the paper pusher diplomat, right? Like yeah. that that's actually like not a, and he needed his dad to get that job, right? Like, yes, yes. Although he's, you know, he's more cut in the image of his dad than his brother is, which if, which is not, which is like to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it just makes the line that like children yeah. are a great misfortune. Parents are always trying to understand our children better, all the more perfect yeah. because it's Oleg who is most like his dad, who presumably had to use his personal connections to rise to minister of railways. Yeah. And now resents Oleg. We think resents Oleg for using the fact that his dad is powerful to like have this extra pressure to maybe do something to save Nina. Oh yeah. I mean like you get that and like, it seems where, you know, and I'm, I'm only like reading the translated Russian, but he's like, it seems like my son like wants me to use my connections to like help you. And there's, it's like delivered incredibly, like it's very flat in the delivery. Like what a, even if sort of there's two ways, like even if I could, what makes anybody think I would or like I can't, but also this is like a fool's errand and, and I, and like, I don't suffer fools. Right. Like that's the whole vibe I got. And Nina doesn't make a foolish request, right? Her request isn't save me. It isn't free me. It isn't prevent me from being executed. It's tell him I wasn't pretending with him. Well, because. Which like is appropriate to Nina's emotional and philosophical approach to the world. Yes. And is closer, I think, to the frequency at which Igor Pavlovich is resonating than Oleg often is. I think that's right. And I think also like the version of Nina that trusted that Stan could maybe save her is like the least, like the least authentic version of Nina. Like she, I felt like she was going against herself in that moment. Like, Mm -hmm. and this is like, this is the tried and true Nina. Like she doesn't depend on other people. She knows not to get, she got her hopes up once and then now she's peeing in a bucket in a prison. Like, like this is not, she, she doesn't, she doesn't suffer delusions of grandeur. And like, that's actually like part of the problem with her. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I think that if she, there's a version of, of a Nina in, in a show like this, like Mm -hmm. shoved into a corner and then starts to use like her position like in both ways in order to, to help herself. Like Nina is not, she's not actively trying to manipulate. And that's just not like the way that she goes. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's an an excellent way to put it. So is Paige then the great misfortune to Philip and Elizabeth? Right. Cause I mean, Henry's, you know, makes a joke about Coca-Cola college, but like other than that is typically not here. And it's Paige who is the like emotional center of the psychic conflict of the Jennings family. I mean, yeah, I think so. And I think that like, I'm not sure if, if, 
I think this scenario makes Philip perhaps think of her like that. But I think in general, the idea of children was way less attractive to Elizabeth, like from the jump. Right. So I suspect mm-hmm. that like the Elizabeth's like general functioning with her kids are like, the, these are a misfortune. We have to, we have to deal with them. <laughs> I mean, and even, I mean, there's so many short conversations between Philip and Elizabeth about Paige in this episode. Yeah. You know, and one of them is, you know, Philip says, you know, why do we want to like make Paige do the things we have to do? Right. He gives a version of that speech, which he's now given a couple of times. And Elizabeth is something to the effect of like, what you want life to always be easy. That's like yeah. how life works. Right. And so, you know, that's actually true of the fact that. It's that, also Elizabeth's ubiquitous refrain, right? Like she's always coming back to that idea of that's not how life works. There's mm-hmm. something about. And Philip always wants to go to, we can give our parent, our children yes. the easy, the easier life that we never had. Philip, who uh, purchased a sports car, is <laughs> like, you know, just always trying to embody the American dream. And we love him for it. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth, on the other hand, is like, in Mother Russia, like, yeah. bread eats you. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> she does love her shoes. And she like, d- you know what? Carrie Russell and as Elizabeth Jennings, great shoes. Great shoes. Great, mostly great fashion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes Except for also. when most of the time, I mean, as Elizabeth, yes, like sometimes she has to wear not the best, uh, not the best fits when she's got to go spying. No, exactly. But. It's like the spy outfits that are frumpy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have? Do we have more to say about? about Paige. I mean, we get this scene of even the way the show is using this like short, mostly funny and especially funny to you and I scene about yeah. <laughs> Paige reading the newspaper and talking about neoliberalism. It's, she doesn't <laughs> use the term. Um, and Phillip's like, since when do you read the paper? Yeah. Right? And it's no coincidence that Paige is there at the island in the kitchen reading the paper as Elizabeth is right next to her. And Philip's yeah. like, wait, since when do you read the paper? And they share that look. Mm-hmm. And it's like Paige has become the the baggage over which they are fighting in the airport, right? Yes. Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> if exactly. you will. <laughs> exactly. And it, it's further... To what extent, because it's of course a both and, but to what extent is Elizabeth using the talking about the news with Paige, yeah. the going to help with church stuff with Paige as a genuine connection versus running her? Yeah. And also like Philip knows that, right? Mm-hmm. Like I of think course, we're of course. seeing. That's this, in that look. Yeah. yeah. Philip knows that and also knows that he can't say anything about it mm-hmm. because like. Well, for a lot of reasons, but it also like, I guess the other thing that it brings up and we haven't talked about this yet is where Paige is like, is, how do you know dad's not cheating on you? And it's like, well, actually he has another wife, but that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) That was my first thought. I was like, where's Martha? (laughs) Right. The the structuring absence of of that conversation, Martha, who does not appear in this episode. No, Um, but, but it's like, oh, Paige, like actually you're you're on to something but like 
you your whole no thing idea. is that Elizabeth doesn't know, and and in fact, like she's the engine driving that. <laughs> she's she's the <laughs> sister wife um, to Philip and Wild. <laughs> to, to Clark and Martha. Wild, um, and I mean, Paige has this just devastating line. Like this is her baggage that she's carrying for now, at least, or what she knows is you look out for each other more than us. Oh, like fucking harsh. Well, and it's like, and true, true. And it brings me back to like a couple of episodes, like the, the last few episodes at the end of the second season where they're literally like someone is literally trying to find them. Right. Larrick is trying to find them and they're really paranoid about, about all of that. And, and yet they leave the kids at the motel, yep. right? Like, uh-huh. let's go on this weird trip to Plattsburgh, New York. And they're, <laughs> they're in a motel. What's happening here? What is happening? So, here? so Paige is like, is not wrong on all these counts. And it's like, oh my God, it's, it, it makes me feel like the part of the reason I brought up the line about like, is dad cheating on you? Is it makes me, that felt like Chekhov's like, cheating question it feels like that's gonna come back like in a later act it's already like a return of the repressed in that this has been on page's mind at several points already totally totally so i'm just interested to see like what happens with this and and how this baggage like gets unfurled Mm. in the show Uh, it suddenly becomes the Sopranos and now they're all in therapy together with Dr. Melfi. Um, Never seen it. (laughs) I mean, I get the reference, but like canonically, iconically never seen it. (laughs) So there's more baggage um, to talk about here. And that is, we'll talk a little more about Nina when we get a little later into the episode, but Stan and Oleg both have their working (laughs) through or not working through as the case may be their feelings about, Nina's um, the verdict against her, the determination against her that she is guilty. Yeah, so they have aware of. So we have the the scene in the alley where Oleg confronts Stan with a gun, right? Mm-hmm. And he's obviously angry, right? Like, and he's like, "You have to pay too," which is interesting because I actually didn't. This is something I didn't see coming at all. Like, obviously, Oleg is is angry and like understandably, but I didn't see him confronting Stan because that feels like such a bonkers move in the world of diplomacy. Um, so he confronts Stan in the alley and, and Stan is like, this is actually my favorite line of the entire episode. He goes, screw you, Oleg. You want to shoot me? Shoot me in the back. And then he walks mm-hmm. away. And the camera work when he's walking away is like very, very cool and yeah. different than how the American. It's a little bit tighter yeah. than a lot you, of the times when they're shooting outdoor spaces. Well, yeah, and you get and and part of the reason for that, right, is like you get this like long shot on Stan's face, and when he yep. turns around, which of course he does because Stan doesn't know how not to fucking turn around. <laughs> when he turns around, Oleg is gone. And so that's like, I, I think you're right to call right. out the camera. And they have there. to hide whether or not Oleg is still standing there, right? They want to like give us the, the suspense that um, Stan is feeling and can't resist 
and ends up looking back. Exactly. Yeah. Some great, good, subtle, no Emmerich acting. He gets to like ham it up and choose scenery yeah, yeah, very, yeah. very soon after this. But yeah. in, in his walk away, um, it's, you know, it's a little more subtle. One other thing about their confrontation, or maybe two things, one thing and a question, is Vla or Oleg can't even fully articulate that his anger is about Nina. Yeah. Right. Cause he, like his actual thing that he more directly accuses Stan of correctly, that Stan does not deny is killing Vlad. Yes. Vlad Segan, yeah. Um, is the thing. So Oleg's not in like, you know, unsurprisingly is sublimating the stuff about Nina and Nina and Stan through like the murder of, of Vlad. And then secondly, do you think that, had Stan gotten on his knees as Oleg had ordered him to, that Oleg would have had it in him to. No, yeah, no. I don't. I don't think so. Not at all. Which is like, Stan. Stan knows him well enough uh-huh. to know that like he's not actually going to shoot him. Yeah, because if he yeah. was, he would have done it initially. Like he would have. First of all, if he was going to shoot him, it would have happened already. Second of all, if he was the kind of person that shot people in that way, he wouldn't be at a desk job at the embassy in an office. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and Stan being good at his job. Yeah, like subtly good at his job. Yeah. <laughs> in a moment that, that, like, I guess, like, in some sense of the word, saved his life. <laughs> uh-huh. For sure. Oh, my God. And then Stan calls... Arthur in Sandy's house uh, leaves a message where he aimlessly like tries to connect with Matthew. Um, And then he shows up and has this, this is like the scenery chewing uh, uh, scene between Sandy and Stan. Well, and like to come back to this like baggage metaphor, Mm -hmm. right. Is like, you get all of this, like there's so, and, and this goes to your scene chewing point. Like, you you get all of this baggage, this like emotional baggage, like sitting in the air between Stan and Sandy and they're doing such a good job. And then also like you get Stan quoting Est, which is like a wild. And he, my sense of it is like, he's not doing it to like woo Sandy or win her back. It's just like, that's the thing that he couldn't help but think about. Yeah, I agree with that. And Sandy's like, you should not be here. And she's not cold or mean about it. She's just like, I shouldn't be the person. And and so there's like, it's, it's perhaps one of the most honest conversations that they've ever had in the face of like, I guess, staring down the barrel of that gun. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's Sandy expressing extremely like strong emotional boundaries and setting and maintaining boundaries. Right. Yeah. So, like good for her. And like yeah. brought her to that. Great for her. And Stan both fully getting it and having no fucking emotional clue at the exact same time, because in the middle of saying exactly why he came to see St- Sandy, he says, I don't know why I came. Right. When Sandy asks him like what he was looking for, what he came for. Yeah. And he says, I don't know why, but he like is at the same time saying exactly why. And he's unwilling to see that. Right. So it stands like emotional self-transparency and self-opacity at the exact same time. I think that's a really good point. And I think it's also like, it's one of those like defining moments of Stan where he's Mm -hmm. like, and it's also the joke we keep making about good at his job, bad at his job, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's incapable of like, 
he's always somewhere on that line. Like he's treading that line so much also like between transparency and opacity and never able to see that he's on such a line. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's that inability to see, which was also the inability to see was also something that was like that I think is a metaphor that like could define his relationship with Nina too. Right. Like all of this Mm -hmm. that makes Stan who he is. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, like that opacity means that the baggage that makes him who he is, is not something he can ever, he's carrying it, but doesn't know how or why or what it is or what's inside it or to what purpose or, you know, we, I could keep going with like the bad analogy. We love it. We love a bad analogy here. (laughs) Oh, we sure do. Um, all right. I think, I think we're moving on to the segments, right? I think we're moving on to the segments. Congrats to us for finishing our first main discussion in roughly two months. months. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And doing it in a speedy 40 minutes. Um, We love. We do. (laughs) So what's in the dossier as we return to the Americans? Okay. In the dossier for me is just like a moment of high anxiety where Philip and Elizabeth are looking at photos that they've hung up in their laundry room and Paige is upstairs. Yeah. I'm like, oh god, how many how many shots of like Paige coming down the laundry room stairs do we need to have in a season to like know that this is a bad idea? Mm-hmm. So it's just like again, Paige asking about like Philip cheating is also Paige asking about them being spies. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, do you have more dossier entries? I have some dossier-related questions I can ask you, but I want to defer to your dossier entries. So my other dossier entry, and then I do want to hear your questions, okay? My other dossier entry is like, I am suspicious of this lady that came in a box. <laughs> yeah. It's like, a great, it's too easy. <laughs> fair. <laughs> I, but I, I also, I'll, I'll say this, okay, do you have, like, concrete suspicions about, like, what, what is happening there? Or just, like, general she is sus? No, just general she is sus, but also my notes say, okay, page, a fair question, Chekhov's gun, question mark, and then is Nina in this box? Oh, my God. What? <laughs> <laughs> I really, I was like, I was like, and I wrote that down before you even, before they even have it open, but I'm like, yeah. okay, maybe there's a person in here. <laughs> and then there was. But then I was like, is that Nina's hand? Like, what's happening here? And it's, I'm like, does Stan think it's Nina? <laughs> so. It's Schrodinger's uh, Soviet woman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. or, or it's seven, except now it's Stan yelling. What's in the box? <laughs> yeah, I didn't have specific like, oh, this is the problem with her. But just, um, I don't know. It's like too easy. And then they put her on stage for a press conference. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, we'll talk more about Zanita here here in a second. But uh, so my questions for you are, Uh uh, do you have any predictions based on this, like, we're good at smuggling people conversation? You had started to, you talked about how that kind of fit emotionally in the arc of the episode and the arc of Philip and Elizabeth's relationship. But any just, like, plot predictions? I wouldn't be surprised if they smuggle Nina out. I wouldn't be surprised if, like, um, 
Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they smuggle Nina out. I, I would. I suspect it's going to come back, but I don't know who else they would smuggle because I don't uh, like Elizabeth's mom. Actually, doesn't seem like a realistic person, but yeah. like it seems like there's some other smuggling that's got to happen. So I'll yeah. keep my eyes and ears perched. Well, there is. I mean, just kind of the like very obvious point that the that Zenyatta was literally smuggled in across the border. Um yeah. and they're talking about how the Soviets are good at smuggling in across the border, which has a mirror scene that or mirror line from Stan we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but they say that I feel like she's smuggled in and they say that after. Yeah, no? exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So like my thing is like, okay, but if we're good at smuggling, we have to be smuggling more people, not just this like one random lady. Got it. Okay. All right. I see what you're saying. Like um, there has so to my, be someone of weight for yeah. us. Mm, right. Right. I see what you're saying. And and it's also though, like maybe this even further amplifies the Zenyeda uh, dossier entry. You know, the talking yeah. about the Soviets being good at smuggling people. And yeah, 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 yeah. Her in. Fair enough. Um, and then also, do you make anything, yes or no, of all of this camera work lingering on Annalise's naked body and then the scene of her getting stuffed in luggage followed immediately by a cut to Nina on the toilet in prison. No. Okay. Oh, not in like a plot kind of way. I've got like a, like cave kind of way that we'll get to. We'll get there. Yeah. 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 Great. Perfect. Um, All right. Should we go on to glass? Yeah. Let's go on to glass. All right. So we should talk a little more about Zinieda, who (laughs) we have to point out. Um, I'm, yes, I've been charged with saying yeah, her name. Just absolutely not. <laughs> um, so Zineda, who is defecting to the U.S. from the uh, like American Canada Institute in Moscow or whatever, right? Who is quite literally smuggled into the country as baggage, right? In yeah. a like cargo container with an oxygen mask yeah. and all. Um, and when she gets to the U.S., like the only two things she wants to do are one, critique the war in Afghanistan, and two, eat Milky Way bars. Listen, who can blame her? Who can blame her? Who, Milky Way bars are not the worst choice. Yeah, I think that's the correct. Word <laughs> like, they're not the best choice either, but they're not the worst choice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like we get her smuggled in as baggage, and she's just like. Now she's here. I think it's worth noting that we're, you know, two episodes after Nina is brought to the USSR to, like, go on trial for espionage and treason, et cetera, et cetera. And here we have another uh, young to middle-aged Soviet woman, right, that Stan is charged with having a close relationship with. Yeah. And so, like, how... I'm interested in how Stan relates to Zineda as a way for him to work out his emotional baggage about Nina. Yeah. Well, and I also, we, not only that, but then there's also like a new lady for Oleg, right? Like, which <laughs> is like also kind of an interesting parallel. Uh-huh. Like, and interesting that they're not, at least in the moment, working out their issues, like with the same woman. So that's mm-hmm. kind of fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. It is, except except that Oleg and Nina, uh, Oleg and Tatiana talk about Zineda's press conference and defection. Yes, yes, and but like Zineda, 
And Stan is like in the background on the TV yes. on the press conference. Yeah. So Ol- hypothetically, Olia could have seen Stan at the press conference and standing behind her. Right. But also there's like a little bit more. I'm interested to see what happens with Oleg and Tatiana because it's uh-huh. like she seems more forceful than Nina ever was. Yes. And there's yeah, yeah. something like. She's very blunt. Yeah. And blunt in a way that different. Nina had her time yes. of being blunt, but, diff- but a different kind of it for Tatiana. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm interested to see like what unfolds there. Mm-hmm. Especially because we get them joking, right? We get Oleg and Tatiana joking, right? Oleg's watching the news about Brezhnev, the U.S. news about Brezhnev's death. Right. And Reagan going to the embassy for the first time right. ever to, like, pay his respects to Tatiana asks Oleg, well, what do you think he Reagan was thinking when he walks in? And Oleg starts with, like, a serious, <laughs> but maybe not entirely serious, and death we are all the same. To which Tatiana answers, how long do I have to stay in this goddamn embassy? <laughs> um, followed by followed by Oye, he's not much older than me. <laughs> oh, it's, it's good laughs. It's not a comedy, mm-hmm. but it's got some good laughs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, this is interesting because in the last episode, um, and if I remember correctly, this was in the, like, previously on thing, yeah. so they were priming us for it. We have Arkady telling Oye, like, calm the fuck down with your political takes in front of the new person, Tatiana, um, because we don't know her yet and don't know what she believes and what her connections are, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. So here we've got it, like, in full force. Yeah. Um, Any other thoughts on Zinieda? I mean, obviously she's the... She's the U.S. She's the U.S. Centric critique of the Soviet Union right. invasion of Afghanistan, right? So we have Yusef, obviously, who is helping run the, you know, the supplying of arms to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Right. And Filipino makes this very, very, very direct point of like, my people are dying in Afghanistan. And when Yusef asks who he is, right? So there's a way in which like Zinedia is the kind of counterpart yeah. to, um, to that. And then ironically, there's a Zinedia. Oyeg, both of them are opposed to the war in Afghanistan. Right? Yeah. I I think like the the biggest set of thoughts I had about Zinyeda and and like I'm again like this is sort of a fascinating like character to to come at this particular moment. The writing on the show is good. <laughs> but it's like I director's medium though. <laughs> I am wary of the speed with which she has become a like this spokesperson like there is something incredibly sloppy about that and we know that stan at least is oftentimes bad at his job and like gad is not great at his job (laughs) (laughs) as evidenced by his aggressive black eyes (laughs) And having the shit kicked out of him by a tiny lady (laughs) (laughs) who admittedly is a trained spy, but like, okay. Like, Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just like, is this a good idea? Which is kind of how I have felt about like American government and this form of international relations since the beginning of the war on terror, which is like really the first time that I like in my political consciousness Mm -hmm. have had doubts 
Mm-hmm. So no, it's an excellent <laughs> analogy um, on several, several different levels. And I guess it's, Stan could take his baggage with Nina and bring it to, I'm going to be incredibly suspicious of right. Zenyatta, or he could just as easily turn it into full acceptance of Zenyatta, right? right? Like both of those are plausible emotional dynamics for right. him in the aftermath of Nina. Yeah. So I, so again, like, like which, how is this going to unfold? Like how, where's this baggage going to land? Yeah. Is it, getting on the like on the belt to claim your luggage or is it just going to like exist in the emotional airport of oh i love it <laughs> as as danielle told me before we started recording that she has started watching station 11 most of which which could be effectively described as emotional baggage in an airport Dude. um is a like totally plausible we, log line we haven't gotten to the airport yet in the show yeah. at least but i like you are absolutely right, because in the book, the airport looms large. Yeah. Okay. Um, so a little bit more in gloss. Yeah. So speaking of Stan, we have <laughs> uh, this incredible line from him. So Gad, Gad has the, like, drawings that he and Aderholt, the, like, forensics drawings oh God, from he and Aderholt. <laughs> They're, like, two totally different people. Neither of them look like the like what the images they have already are from previous instances of run-ins and Stan gives this line. Well, they're just really good at disguises. Oh my God. If you only fucking knew Stan, (laughs) like they're literally like, she's across the street. They're your neighbors. They're your neighbors, Stan. But like, it was a good, uh, it was, it lightened things up for me. Yeah. That line. Yeah. So maybe then the last thing in glass is that I know Danielle, that as a viewer of the Americans, you love just like a pure spycraft scene. So what did you think of the extended multi-scene spycraft work in like the latter third of this episode? I loved it. Um, Obviously I have my issues with the like page being upstairs with the pictures, but like the being in the mode, like mapping the motel, being in the motel, like we're getting, we're switching between like Phillips sort of camera lens view, Elizabeth's view. They've got operator headsets on, which felt yep. like too much. Yep. <laughs> I think that's the first time we've seen those. I think, I think you're correct. Like where is the, where are the like nude colored weird headphones? Like I miss those. Yeah. But I love that. I mean, it also gives us like Elizabeth's brashness, right? And both in terms of the like, she doesn't even wait for Philip to like respond, but she's like, I, I, I gotta go. She ignores him when he like pops out of the room. And then she's like, let's just like be in the bar and have a drink. Like, it just, I like all of it loved it. What about you? Yeah, you do a good job, Danielle, to highlight how this is obviously, like, fun plot dynamics and, like, they're doing the spy stuff at the same time that it is communicating further the conflict between the two of them, both the, like, long-running conflict of Elizabeth being more willing to take risks, being more committed, et cetera, et cetera, um, and then the, like, immediate conflicts about, like, what to do about the Afghan group in this particular mission. And, like, the argument that they have in the car after they followed uh, Yusuf and um, Breland to the bar. Yeah. Um, I don't think – actually, you don't know it's Breland yet, but his name's Breland. Yeah, I was like – Impressed that you knew in the name of the dude, but I had to. I noticed it when I was doing some research on the episode before we started yeah. recording. So uh, Breland does become important, though. So we'll you know we can we we'll can meet him that. again. 
You will. Um, and so anyway, there's like just the emotional dynamics of it. And I have to say, I loved the tiny camera handoff taking shots like around corners, like around the corner of Philip's body, like really impressive. I, I don't know. think if I was like trying to secretly take a picture of Larry, my cat as he's like creeping up behind me and I'm just like holding my phone around the side of my body, not looking, I would not be successful, but I, I think we can assume Philip was. Yeah. And I was thinking of myself when I was watching this, like I did a Rad Lopez, <laughs> like, <laughs> core or like upper body workout yesterday and like there's something about the like twisting but without really twisting one's body that like they were doing where I was like oh I like could barely even open my arm so then to like (laughs) twist back I was I was like well I could not do any my body couldn't contort in those ways in a way that wasn't obvious and yes he like nonchalantly like stands at the bar to watch the fight on tv (laughs) yeah Yeah. And just uh, and just like the whole, again, I mean you talk about how it's not a comedy, it's not a particularly funny show, yeah. but there are really funny lines. The Philip asking them what beer they have and like they just keep going yeah. and she keeps <laughs> listing stuff. Um was a like pretty funny oh moment to me. God. No, and then of course good. he's just like, We'll have two millers. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> I just wanted you to like rev your engine a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And, like, give them some time to scope out the situation exactly. and to be listening while they're figuring shit out. And who better to not listen to than a bartender who is literally doing labor to serve you? Philip? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Philip? Yeah, little. If we didn't have other um, if we didn't have other things to do, we could give them Arlie Hochschild um, in the cave or theory ship. There you go. But we do but have other things to do. We do. Before we get there, though, we have a couple other segments. Are we ready to keep going? Oh, we are ready to keep going. Okay. <laughs> We've got Borrowed Nostalgia for the Unremembered 80s. In the past two months, Danielle, have you uh, just, no. you know, <laughs> has it come to you in a dream what the name of the, what the reference is? No. And okay. I forgot that it was a thing I should care about. And now I'm bothered that I still don't know. <laughs> Great. Um, well, Perfect. hopefully, if we end up with some new guests, uh, maybe they can help you this uh, this season on not quite <laughs> great books. All right. Um, I think we have to start yeah. where we started this entire episode yeah. with Paige, the like budding critic of neoliberalism. Oh in, yeah, and like, in, 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 Pe- in the '80s, Pepsi Georgetown University. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to do you want to set the scene into why we love this so much? Well, I think like the idea that universities will like Paige is like joking about it she's like oh god like universities are going to be sponsored and it's like no but like actually like that's climbing closer to reality i feel like the place that hits closest to home for me is like you have like crypto arenas now like all of the sports arenas it used to be like it used to be named after people or places and now it's like named after corporations and so like we are getting closer. The neoliberalization of higher education is soon to be represented in the corporate sponsorship within the name of universities. Yeah. So it works on that extremely like literal and direct level. Yeah. And then also more like broadly also, it also functions as a you know, calling out of 
neoliberalization of public higher ed, where in fact, like the state has indeed divested from funding, adequately funding public higher education, you know, is witnessed by like the budget crisis that all the like 15 SUNY schools are currently in, including my own or manifesting in the, you know, debt crisis, student debt crisis as manifesting in um, the adjunctification of labor in higher ed is like, you know, manifesting in any number of different ways. And here we have Paige Jennings, you know, 14, 15 yeah. years old. <laughs> just calling it out. The newspaper. And just started reading the newspaper and was already like, this motherfucker Reagan, <laughs> you know, is like launching the neoliberal agenda in higher ed here in 1982. Which like also, if we want to think about like Elizabeth's long game here, fits nicely into like the critique of war and the critique of like neoliberalism, like fits quite nicely into like the budding potential, like link to communist ideology that Elizabeth is like hoping for, for her daughter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. We're like not, you know, there's, there's no corporations to sponsor, you know, like, um, like the Gertzen University, which is where I was at for my semester in St. Petersburg. Like, it's not going to be the, I don't even know, the like a lot of university of Gertzen in St. Petersburg. Again, in Soviet Russia, bread eats you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What else, what else do we have in the eighties here, Danielle? So in the 80s, we've also got the, like, and this comes sort of, like, in the same breath, right? Like, the Brezhnev death. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I discovered on the internet that, uh, indeed, Reagan did visit the Soviet embassy, so they're probably using actual archival footage that Oleg and Tatiana are watching. Yeah. And the rest of the embassy, but that happened on November 14th, 1982. So that's situating us, like, in a particular time, like, the show, you know, in a less flashy way yeah. than like Mad Men often did in terms of like, here's the historical context that we're giving. So you know what like day or month it is. Yeah. Right. The show's constantly giving us that. Um, yeah. And the like uh, fandom, Amer- the Americans fandom wiki is like really loves to point that out nice. and we appreciate it. Like thanks yeah. to the, the real ones over there. We love it. Um, <laughs> but just, I mean, kind of generally like Brezhnev's death and what's going to happen next. Like, this is a succession crisis in the Soviet Union, how it's going to affect the war, how it's going to affect the KGB. Like, we know that there's going to be a couple of people before uh, Gorbachev comes into the picture um, as the leader of the Soviet Union. You say we, and I'm like... Me and Keller. Yeah, like, you know that you have such... Like, I think the thing that sometimes you forget, which is a thing I love about you, is that, like, your knowledge of Soviet Union stuff, both in like in that you have watched the show before. So like some of these things make sense to you in that way, but also just like as someone who studied this like pretty closely and as someone who is very good at details, (laughs) like incredibly detail oriented, I'm like, Oh yeah. Brezhnev was a, 
person. (laughs) (laughs) Brezhnev was, like, very long-running, right? Like, he was premier for a very long time. Yeah. And so, like, there was indeed a question of, and you just have, like, a fucking bunch of old guys who are, like, close to death um, as, like, the potential successors, and that will create some problems, let us say. Yeah. And, and, like, those broad strokes, I And will rebound back down on all of the characters in the show, right? More importantly for our purposes. Listen, I'm I'm not, I wouldn't, I'm just going to say that like part of why I'm watching this show is to like learn like Soviet Union history (laughs) from you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've got, we've got, we've got Andropov and Chernenko before we get to the My God, I literally never heard those names ever in my entire life. (laughs) What else do we have in Bar Nostalgia, John? Yeah. um, So on a lighter note, (laughs) an incredible mustache like absolutely glorious from our guy philip in this episode his disguise to spy on yusuf's meeting with the ca afghan group just includes like the hair is pretty cool as far as his disguises go but the mustache and the glasses or sunglasses is just like primo 80s shit right right here yeah i mean like this felt like not only like a great mustache disguise which was so spot on for the 80s but also just like there's good wig work happening in this episode as well both for philip and elizabeth like that also feel very 80s and so it's just like but the the mustache is like the piece de resistance (laughs) in terms of like how it's like they really just like went deep with that one Mm -hmm. and like a very subtle like costume choice but we love it we do love it. All right. I think we've got one more yeah. you know, for, of borrowed nostalgia. Listen. This one less borrowed because it persisted into the 90s. Yeah, it persisted into the 90s. In fact, Bonnie Honig like, writes about it in, <laughs> in a book. Of course she does. <laughs> it's, in, it's in the public things book. Um, but I love that, that Stan is like calling Sandy from a phone booth and like leaving a message on an answering machine. Like that together feels like incredibly 80s to me. Like the, the idea that people would listen to their answering machine like so soon after you called. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I have like 47 voicemails on my phone. I, I don't even know how to listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> I literally only a couple of weeks ago set up my voicemail at my campus phone, like landline, that I have been working in for over four years. I'm looking at my phone and I don't know how to do that. And I'm never going to learn. <laughs> I had to look it up, and someone pointed out to me that, like, if you called my office phone um, at work, you got somebody who was very much not me as <laughs> leaving a message. So they were like, you should probably fix that. So I did. Fair. Very fair. But, yeah, so that's my – that's, I think, our last, like, entry into Bard Nostalgia. Yeah. Not a ton of 80s stuff, but, like, solid 80s, uh, yeah. 80s stuff. The Americans loves a phone booth, um, and as a like classic spy trope um, and classic like crime show trope, or like I'm thinking yeah. about the way, like the way The Wire uh, used um, used payphones. Never in seen its it. First season. Yeah, <laughs> this is just a oh yeah, John. Just keep naming shows I've never seen. <laughs> yeah, I mean you could do the same to me. I'm sure. Um, yes, but they're all like seasons of the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> They all have names, and I know them all. 
Okay, I think a fun game we could play um, on air if you want it is you like give me four, three of them are names of seasons of the challenge yeah. and one is not, and I have to guess which one is not actually a and season. And done. Okay, great. That's a little homework for not quite great books. That can go in glass next week. Um, <laughs> all right, let's get to the minor character of the week. Danielle, who do we have this week? This week we have Evie. Is that her? how you say yeah. her name? It's played by Katya Herbers. I have no idea if I said that right, but we'll just pretend. Um, this is Nina's Belgian, I guess, cellmate. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my favorite part of of this character is when she's just like uh, helplessly pacing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And Nina is, you could just see Nina's like consciousness unravel. <laughs> Like she, she's just going crazy and, and like pulls the blanket over her head. There's something like incredibly <laughs> visceral about that scene. So that's why I wanted to nominate her as our minor character of the week. Yeah. Like doing distraught Belgian student question mark, like very, very well. Yeah. Insisting she's innocent to Nina and Nina gives her the like classic line of this is not a prison for innocent people. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that was our minor character of the week. Part of me hopes we never see her again. Another, another part of me hopes that we do see her again. <laughs> no comment. Okay. Amazing. Um, All right. Let's, let's go to the cave. And Danielle, you are really taking us on, a, on an <laughs> allegorical journey. We're on a if journey. If I understand us correctly. <laughs> okay. So for the cave, I want to take Peter Eubin into the cave with us. Um, Eubin was a political theorist. He passed away a couple of years ago. He was somebody who, um, wrote a lot about ancient political thought. He, um, was the teacher of a number of my teachers and good friends. And he has this book called the tragedy of political theory. So he's someone whose work I draw on a lot in terms of my own work. And in his reading of Euripides' The Bacchae, you didn't think we were going to get out of this one without some Euripides, <laughs> did you? There's body horror here. Come on. Always always already with Euripides. Exactly. This is the not-quite-great-Euripides books podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but in his reading of Euripides' The Bacchae, which is a bonkers play that ends with um, – Agave, who is a, a mother and one of the sort of main characters in the play, ripping the body of her son apart. Um, but she thinks that her son is a lion. So she brings the dismembered body to like show her own father, like her accomplishment. Like, look at what I did, even though I'm a woman, like I have torn this lion from limb to limb. Like that's how powerful and strong I am. Only to only to kind of come to and realize that she's ripped the body of her son apart, not a lion. So there's a lot to say about that. But Eubin's reading of the play um, brings up this idea of dismemberment, which I think is another way to think through some of those like moments of baggage that we talked about. So I just want to read a quote from Eubin and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. Sound Great. good? I'm ready. Okay, so this is from uh, The Tragedy of Political Theory. If membership, like identity, presupposes plurality or standing apart as well as standing with or community, then the loss of identity, the simultaneous erosion of difference and unity, is a form of dismemberment. Whether figurative or literal, collective or individual, political or physical, dismemberment destroys completeness and continuity until 
until what has been whole and coherent is scattered, torn apart, unrecognizable. Pentheus, the sun that gets torn apart, isolated from those who could sustain and constrain him, is helpless before the gods' machinations. Utterly seduced by what he what he thinks he despises and would imprison as other, he vacillates between hypermasculinity and coquettish effeminacy, double-sidedness and single-mindedness. In this, he is politically and psychologically dismembered long before he is dismembered physically and ritually. Here is a man or boy without character, unformed, inconstant, tyrannical. So part of what I like about this Um, this idea of dismemberment. And I think this matches some of the way we're thinking about baggage is that on the one hand, Eubin is thinking about the like physical, like tearing body from limb to limb. And we might think about that in terms of, in terms of Annalise's body, like a sort of like, we're, we're hearing her bones be broken, right? There's a, there's a literal dismemberment so that she can be shoved into this bag. Mm -hmm. And, with that physical dismemberment comes a sort of like emotional unraveling that's that yeah. is ratcheted up in this episode. So there's there's the physical and the emotional like around one particular thing, but I also think there's a way in which the Elizabeth's flashbacks to her family, the the story she tells Philip with the regard to her mother, the flashback we get with regard to her father, right? Like the story of her father is kind of a way that we are seeing at once a kind of dismemberment of or a dismembering of Elizabeth and a a remembering of the the version of Elizabeth we have here today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are way there's a way that this metaphor of like dismemberment functions sort of like in and through all of these pieces. I would also say the stand stuff with regard to Nina and and it's sort of culminating in going to Sandy at, at his, at Arthur's house, right? Like we're seeing Stan, like Stan's emotional dismemberment take shape, like over the course of this episode. Oh, that's an incredible reading, Danielle. <laughs> like what a way to bring us back into recording with this like wonderful soliloquy <laughs> that is like deep and like paying homage to somebody who's important to your work yeah. and all of that. And I think, I think we can keep going with the metaphor as well in the way that Elizabeth and Philip understand Paige and their family and how to dis or remember their family in contrasting ways. So for Elizabeth, Paige becoming a spy, becoming a second generation, quote unquote, illegal is a way to like repair the dismemberment from, of Paige from the Soviet union, from the nation, from like, the nation qua family yeah. that she thinks Paige is suffering yeah. from, right? On some level. Or the, you know, providing the like connection to something bigger, like provide that Paige is disconnected from and is trying to find in Jesus or Christianity or whatever. Right. And for Elizabeth, that's actually like that's a dismemberment that we don't want or a yeah. that we don't want. Whereas Philip is reading that effort by Elizabeth as dismembering their family, their kids, right? Absolutely. Their existences. Yeah. And I think like the, just to like build on this a little bit, the question of how to turn an operative, right? Like how to turn Mm. someone into an operative, whether it be Yusuf or Paige, and those are doing different things in different moments, like is to me, 
a function of like what needs to be dismembered in order to remember them in a different way, right? So part of Yubin's reading is around thinking about like dismemberment always comes with a kind of remembering, but that remembering like does not put the pieces back together in the same way. And so both mm-hmm. Paige and Yusuf need to be, their pieces need to be put back together, but in a particular way that serves the Soviet cause. Incredible. Love it. And also like Elizabeth is trying to remember her mother yeah. and her relationship with her mother. I'm also like thinking about, so in the end of my intro to political theory class every semester, we watch the documentary by Astra Taylor, What is Democracy? Sure. And there's one of the, like, the kind of central framing device is Astra Taylor talking to Sylvia Federici, I think a previous, uh, like, discussion on Not Quite Great Books. I believe so. Uh, I, th- I think we've had Federici here before. Um, in front of the allegory of good and bad government, which is this fresco around three walls painted in Siena, Italy, huh. in, like, the, in the late 1300s. Okay. And they have this conversation about, like, so there's literally somebody being cut in half and like a like a judicial execution mm. that's depicted in the painting as an example of good government and so they're having this reading of like well what if that person was trying to like have a revolt of the peasants against the wealthy in yeah. this town and then they have this conversation about like dismembering and remembering the social body so uh, like there's there's you know that's that's happening in my brain as well which for- also gets us back and we don't have to dig into this but like, I think there's a reading of neoliberalism and neoliberalization through the lens of dismemberment, right? Like, Absolutely. Like it's trying to, yeah, it's, it's an atomizing that is also a dismembering. Exactly. Oh. So Paige had it right all along with her, like. Listen, that, our budding again. political theorist. <laughs> budding political theorist. Yeah. Um, speaking of actually, oh. so I th- we have theory ship. Yes. And so my theory ship for this episode um, is that I would like to give Elizabeth and Paige both some Sandra Bartke. <laughs> Nice. Okay. <laughs> um, just at the beginning, they're like making fun of the appearance or like a body shape and size of like the secretary yeah. at the office, Barb. Um, and like, I think it'd be useful if they could connect, you know, like the capitalism or neoliberalism that they both despise yes. with like the discipline like patriarchal disciplinary techniques. I, I so think, I think Sandra Bartke would like help make them not shit on uh, Barb, the secretary yeah. and also um, could make their critique more uh, impressive. I'm, I'm on board with that. I just literally just gave a student Bartke to read. <laughs> so I feel great I mean, about we, that. We've all been there. Like student, you, the Sandra Bartke will be meaningful for you. Have we gotten to the end of the episode? <laughs> we did. We did it. And a, a very like quick, you know, hour and 17 <laughs> minutes, which honestly for us is quick. That, that is quick. <laughs> I mean, we got like in the summer, we were doing like regularly an hour and 30. Well, we 40. needed, there needed to be time for you to yell about MCU stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No disagreement. No You're lies. Like, yeah, detected. no lies told. <laughs> no lies detected. Oh my goodness. Uh, well, 
I feel accomplished and excited that we got Me to too. the end of the episode. Um, yeah. I was already psyched to be back I know. recording again <laughs> after months and months of a nightmare semester for me. In oh, my ways. God. I know. Um, but it has some successes and triumphs in the end. So Listen. You know, true story. You got story. yourself out of the cave. <laughs> yeah. Just, did, did not think it was going to happen. No, not uh, at all. It's Danielle knows when, when, like, for months, the only two kinds of texts Danielle got for me was complaining about a thing that was happening at work and, like, freaking out about it. Yeah. And B, texting about funny things that were said in other podcasts. Those were the yeah, only two I, genres of texts that Danielle had for me for, like, a solid seven weeks or I, But listen... I'm here for that. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're a wonderful friend, and of course, you like <laughs> affirmed and upheld that. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of wonderful friends, thanks so much to producer Amy. Um, up Great. next in the feed next week will be the American season three, episode three, Open House. Um, Any predictions on the basis of that title? Well, I'm like, are we going to use the title to analyze the episode? Because that would be a very fun, would be a fun challenge for us. Speaking of neoliberalism. (laughs) um. (laughs) Um, But thanks so much for joining us on Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.